You're listening to, at any rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in today's fixed income currency and commodities markets. Comments in this podcast were taken from the report, J.P. Morgan Perspectives, Goodbye to Negative Yields, published on June 15, 2022, and available to institutional clients of J.P. Morgan Securities on J.P. Morgan Markets. I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research. Well, what a wild week it has been in markets, with the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield now at 3.4%. We have the Fed hiking 75 basis points in the June meeting, and that's not all. We look for two more 50 basis point hikes in July and September before the committee slows to a 25 basis point hike per meeting pace until reaching a terminal funds rate of 35 to 3.5% by early next year. This week, our Global Index Research Group retired and bid adieu to the Negative Yield Index Monitor. Now, this was launched back in 2015, but we have seen the level of negative yielding debt fall from a peak of over $17.2 trillion during the height of the pandemic to just $5.6 trillion, a 35% fall or less than 5% of the universe of developed market government bonds. And this is mostly in short-term bonds and bills and could soon um, also go by the wayside. So what lies ahead? Is the move away from negative yields a lasting goodbye to the great moderation era that we've had for the last 40 years? As the title suggests in our latest J.P. Morgan Perspectives report, we say goodbye to negative yields for now as we explore the exit from a negative yielding world given the secular rise in interest rates and inflation, with macro volatility here that we think will endure. We feature research from our long-term strategy team, which is led by Jan Noyce and um, his colleague Alex Weiss, who examined the secular forces that will drive the ongoing rise in real yields covering the demographics, climate objectives and investment needs, deglobalization, and the surge in fiscal debt. However, are we in lower for longer? Is this gone forever? Not so fast in our view. In this new era of faster moving business cycles, we highlight the risk of a continuation of stop-go policies beyond what we are currently seeing. History will likely repeat itself with relapses into negative yields, particularly considering the cumulative costs of monetary and fiscal stimulus programs that each crisis has brought. As real yields rise, what does this mean for recession risks and prospects for a soft landing? And what does this mean for returns and what should investors do? Our long-term strategy and economics team examined the implications for asset allocation over a 10-year horizon and the risk. And I am very pleased to be joined today by Jan Weiss, who is head of long-term strategy in our strategic research team, his colleague, Alex Weiss, who is also part of the long-term strategy team, Pritam Nanda from our Global Index Research Team, and Peter McQuarrie from our U.S. Economics Team. So let's talk about retiring the Negative Yield Index Monitor, and I'm going to turn to Pritam first. So Pritam, first of all, when did you start monitoring the negative yield phenomena, and when did it peak? And how quickly have we seen an exit and a reversal of the negative yields? Thank you for having me, Joyce. Uh, Good question. So in our flagship developed markets index, the GBI Global, uh, we first observed the negative yielding phenomenon um, in late 2012, early 2013. But the phenomenon that we know today, or we have come to understand it uh, since that time, really didn't appear until, um, I would say, early to mid-2015. In fact, our first negative yielding monitor wasn't until June of 2015, 
And at that time, the total share of negative yielding debt was about 10% of the overall GBI global index, so roughly $2 trillion at the time. Now, fast forward five years, when we're thinking about the peak of this, we went from that $2 trillion in, in middle of 2015 to $17.2 trillion at the, at the outset of the pandemic in March 2020. And this corresponds to roughly you know, 40% of the overall debt stock, and that's quite a large number given overall debt, has, debt issuance had also increased at that time. Now, the $17 trillion high mark wasn't a single blip right at the offset of the pandemic, we saw it touch multiple times throughout uh, the pandemic year 2020. Now, given that pre-pandemic, we were discussing U.S. Treasuries at near zero, this you know, high inflation prints and uh, you know, withdrawal of liquidity actually dramatically reversed this, this negative yielding trend. Uh, in fact, it happened so fast that in just the past seven months since November of 2021, we saw a total of $7.5 trillion um, of negative yielding debt just effectively erased from the market. And now we're back to those uh, early 2015 levels. So where we once saw German 30-year bonds dip below zero uh, in terms of yield, now we have no country in the GBI global, even with five-year plus maturity buckets, that has any negative yielding debt stock um, that's recorded. In fact, between January of this year and today, 50% of the withdrawal of negative yielding debt has come from these this medium to longer term uh, buckets. So now, really, Japan is the only country with any significant amount of negative yielding debt stock that's recorded. In fact, 78% of the total negative yielding debt stock is coming from, from, from Japan. And even there, from a maturity bucket standpoint, really, it's only about $1 trillion in the in the three, three to five year bucket. But apart from that, we're all, we've all but uh, come out of this very quickly, uh, in, in, in basically in 2022. Thanks so much, Preetam, for those insights on how rapidly the environment has changed. Um, I'd like to now turn to discuss the regional differences. How much of the remaining stock is um, you know, short-term and it could disappear once the ECB begins to lift off? And what are some of these regional differences that we see in the decline in negative yields? Yes, so regional differences has certainly been a theme throughout this period. Uh, Japan has uh, always held the lion's share since we began tracking this. Um, but in contrast to the rest of the countries that we track in the GBI Global uh, Developed Markets Index, Japan actually saw the peak of its negative yields touched in July of 2016, where we saw $8.9 trillion um, uh, within, within the Japanese uh, uh, curve. Um, the euro area, however, um, did start to tick up pre-pandemic. Um, and the interesting story here is that it touched peripheral Europe as well. Uh, but of, of course, we should note that the majority was always within France and Germany, uh, both of which had $2 trillion in negative yielding debt stock uh, at its peak. Um, now, no story of uh, negative yielding debt and uh, regional differences would be complete if I didn't talk about emerging markets. Uh, and we did see that with at least one China bond in local currency. And, um, you know, that was very short-lived. Uh, if there's a story here, it's that the short-term maturing debt of Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland did touch below zero for a brief period of time as well. Uh, now, the U.S. has actually really didn't take hold on negative yield um, story at all. Um, we saw a brief period of short-term bills that entered into negative territory. But if you think about traditional bonds, two-year bonds, et cetera, even the two-year 
didn't didn't touch below below zero. Whereas you know, for Germany or Italy, you saw it. You did see it in uh, in the longer term longer term data debt. Um, so now, if we take what the U.S. is doing, which is a reversal of monetary policy into into hikes, um, and we've all but wiped out any negative yielding debt in the current composition for the U.S. Not in two years, and certainly not anywhere in the bills either. Um, so if we look at the potential question of the ECB liftoff in the euro area. As of uh, end of last month, there was 1.3 trillion in negative yielding debt stock uh, in Europe, in the euro area, uh, all of which um, was, um, or rather most of which, 90% of which was in late, less than one year maturity terms. So in other words, it's really hard to see that this short-term debt will not come out of uh, uh, negative yielding territory as the ECB lifts off. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Joyce. Thank you so much, Preetam, for those insights. Um, you know, as we have watched um, this decline occur very rapidly, really accelerate over the last few months. Let me now turn to Jan Lois, head of our long-term strategy. And let's really talk about what this means for the markets. Let's talk about what to own over the longer term and what returns to expect. So Jan, you've been writing for years right now, calling this the end of the great moderation, which has lasted for the last 40 years. We've called it regime change. And you forewarned that we're entering a period of great instability. What does this mean for real yields? And what do you think that about inflation, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields? Where is this going to average over the next decade? Thanks, Joyce. Great moderation. Yes, it is there. surely not there today. We have record low unemployment, record high inflation rate. The question is whether any form of moderation will return. And my call is that this macro volatility we're seeing today is probably going to fade a bit in coming years, but not all the way back to the great moderation. Because this great moderation while controlling inflation came at a cost of weaker growth due to weaker recoveries from recessions. And U.S. policymakers, with hindsight, know that they've overcooked this economy. But I don't think the message they're taking away is next time not to do anything at all. So I think in the next recession will again see a lot of stimulus not as much as this time around because they do want these recoveries to be more vibrant um, as a result yeah i do see higher macro volatility in the future average inflation rate the message is more very volatile and with upsurges probably larger than downfalls in inflation, it gives you on average a higher inflation rate. I don't think it'll be 5%. I'm calling more three, a bit, a bit more like that in the United States. So impact on interest rates, higher macro volatility, it's not diversifiable. So it does give you higher risk premium, term premium, credit spreads. Uh, and term premium means higher real bond yields. Together with all the work that Alex is doing on that, we're seeing interest rates, long-term interest rates, treasuries, more in a, in a five to six range uh, around the end of the decade. 
Well, those are actually really big changes from what we have seen um, in um, the recent post-crisis um, period, post-GFC and also post-pandemic crisis period. Um, how does this change your expected returns for the traditional 60-40 bond equity allocation? allocation? Well, paradoxically, this end of the great moderation term has increased the prospective returns on bonds and equities and on your classic 60-40 equity bond allocation in the US. Because this end of great moderation rises in inflation have given us a dramatic repricing of both bonds and equities. The longer term, 10 years out, returns are all a function of your entry point, your evaluation term. And given the massive fall in bond and equity prices, I'd say your fixed income, your U.S. ag, treasuries, mortgages, high-grade corporates are now priced for 4% over the next decade. Give or take a percentage point around that, but not a lot of risk. Equities, we're looking at a variety of valuation signals, not all giving the same numbers. I do have to average them out, and I come up with just over 6% at the moment on US equities. So your 60-40 is a bit more than five. My call is for about 3% inflation, so it's about 2% real, uh, still below historic uh, levels. What will investors do with that? At the end of next last year, US investors are surely abandoned 60-40, were massively more in equities. In my mind, probably because the overall 60-40 at that point gave you a return that was way too low to give you the income you desire, you want in retirement. Now at the repricing with the risk return trade-off line nicely parallel higher, so 60-40 is not as bad anymore, even though below historic levels. So I'd say it's time to start rebalancing back towards your own personal version of 60-40. Thank you so much, Jan. So that is really food for thought as we look at the next 10 years and how this will affect um, how we look at fixed income opportunities versus equity opportunities. Um, Alex, let me now turn to you and let's talk more about those structural factors that are driving the um, rise in real yields that Jan talks about. So, Alex, arguably one of the most important factors that driving up real yields is the demographic reversal, with the effect of demographics on real interest rates reverting to the levels that we last observed in the 1980s. But, you know, living longer usually implies lower real interest rates. So why do you see higher real yields going forward? And beyond the demographics, what are the other secular and structural forces that will drive long-term interest rate dynamics? So demographic forces, in our view, affect real interest rates through their effect on the supply and demand for capital. The supply for capital is savings and the demand for capital is investment needs. And what we find with a very large sample of countries uh, since 1960 is that various demographic features have effects on these savings and investment propensities. Uh, the two biggest effects are these. The first one is the increases in longevity tend to increase savings relative to investment. As you're living longer, you're saving more for your anticipated retirement. 
and increases in old age dependency shares tend to decrease savings relative to investment. As you have more retirees in your economy consuming with little to no income, so putting downward pressure on savings rates. So historically, as you've seen, demographics has put downward pressure on real interest rates because we've seen very substantial increases in longevity, but at the same time, broadly speaking, actually not very large increases in old age dependency shares. Our view is looking at the magnitude of these effects that that changed in the mid 2010s. So looking forward to 2030, we're anticipating slower increases in longevity, but more substantial increases in old age, old age dependency shares. So this is in our view, putting upward pressure on real yields. Demographics is just one force. We think it's a very important one, but in our paper in the report, we discuss 11 structural forces. At the top of the list in terms of, of precedence, we think our demographics, but also climate change. So the need to make very substantial investments to mitigate the effects of climate change will be driving a very substantial shift towards a higher investment intensity of the global economy. At the same time, we've seen very substantial accumulation of fiscal debt since the GFC and during the COVID pandemic. And we think, again, this is operating to soak up a very substantial part of the savings pool. So as I said, in the paper, we discuss 11 forces, also such as growth, inequality, the trajectory for deglobalization. And to sum it up, really what we find is that more forces in our view are pointing up than are pointing down over the next 10 years. Well, as we look at this background of higher yields and higher inflation, what is the best long-run hedge for inflation? In our analysis, we found that various commodity-linked assets were effective hedges of U.S. inflation. So we found that returns on commodities like energy, agricultural products, and industrial metals were positively correlated with U.S. inflation. While contrary to what some may assume, returns on precious metals uh, such as gold were in fact not positively correlated. We also found that EM commodity currencies and the stocks of international commodity producers were again effective hedges of long-run inflation. Beyond commodities, we found that healthcare and financial equities tended to outperform the market in an inflationary environment. So to sum up, we think there are a portfolio of effective inflation hedges, uh, not simply one, and each can potentially serve a role. Thank you so much, Alex, for those insights. Um, and really, everybody see the full report because there's a whole listing of the structural factors that we're monitoring that are contributing to the current phenomena of rise in real yields. I'd like to now turn to talk about the U.S. economic outlook and turn to Peter Mercury in our U.S. economics research team. So, Peter, how much further does the rebound from COVID have to go? And we are seeing heightened concerns about U.S. recession risk. Are these concerns overdone? And what is your recession model signaling with respect to the recession risk over different time horizons? What should we think about as the key drivers of the recession risk over the medium term, particularly as Jan and Alex warn about shorter and more volatile cycles? That's a great question, Joyce. Thanks for asking. So 
in some sense, the COVID rebound is nearly complete, at least in terms of headline numbers. For example, real GDP is already above where it stood just prior to the downturn. And in terms of the labor market, the economy has added just over 21 million jobs, a little less than the 22 million jobs lost between February and April of 2020. Uh, in terms of our outlook, we do expect the economy to slow in coming quarters as a consequence of tighter financial conditions and a Fed expeditiously on the move uh, to slow the economy and bring inflation under control. Uh, while we think that headline GDP growth will still be strong for the remainder of the year, we expect that the combined effect of an appreciated dollar, a drop in asset prices, and higher borrowing costs will altogether lead growth to slip below potential in coming quarters. So that by the third quarter of this year, we think that employment growth will be at a pace that was typical prior to the pandemic uh, with scope for further slowing into next year. So uh, the COVID rebound has been characterized by a variety of market imbalances that nevertheless complicate the path ahead for the Fed in its effort to slow the economy and bring prices down all without inducing a recession, the so-called soft landing. Uh, the first imbalance is in terms of consumer demand, which during the pandemic rotated sharply away from services and toward durable goods and pre precipitated the initial inflationary impulse that we saw last year. While some of this shift in consumer behavior was related to pandemic concerns, arguably a decent portion was a consequence of uh, fiscal and monetary intervention and overall Im improvements in household balance sheets, factors that uh, may limit the pace of demand normalization and in turn price normalization, even as the public health crisis begins to subside. Uh, but it is uh, the imbalanced and exceptionally tight labor market that represents a more formidable and enduring source of upward pressure on prices that, according to historical precedent, raises the risk of recession. And, uh, you know, arguably, it's difficult for the economy to avoid a recession when there is this policy tightening that is intended to ease high resource, resource utilization. So that's why our recession risk monitors are signaling elevated recession risk, particularly um, at uh, a two to three year horizon out. The unemployment rate currently sits at 3.6%, which is below various estimates of uh, the natural rate. And uh, compensation growth is much faster than it was prior to the pandemic. Um, so all told, our recession models are pointing to above 50% chance of recession. And while it is the case that uh, we think the soft landing is the most likely, most likely outcome for the future, uh, it is nevertheless a precarious path ahead. So Peter, thank you so much for those insights on the recession risk. I wanna now turn to the work that you've done on household savings. Now household savings have provided a very important cushion as growth has slowed and we've endured higher commodity prices. How much of this excess savings has been depleted since the beginning of the year? Um, and how much of the excess savings reflect asset price reflation that could face just greater volatility? That's a, a, another great question. So over the course of the pandemic, U.S. consumers accumulated excess savings on the order of around $2.5 trillion. And thus far into the year, it looks like consumers have tapped into that amount by around $100 billion or so. So since late last fall, we have argued that these excess savings uh, alongside overall strength in household balance sheets that occurred over the course of the pandemic uh, would support 
consumer demand and provide a buffer against uh, sharp increases in prices and the purchasing power pinch that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine and altogether give way to a drop in the saving rate to well below pre-pandemic norms of around 7 to 7.5%. Indeed, this is what has happened thus far into the year. Real income through April was down 1.9% at the same time that real consumer spending was up 2.8%. And overall, the saving rate dropped to a dramatic 4.4%, which is the lowest that has been since uh, September of 2008. Uh, we suspect that saving rates will continue to fall in coming quarters as consumers seek to maintain a steady pace of consumption growth, even with uh, real income set to decline uh, in, in the near term. Now, more broadly, household balance sheets are uh, still quite strong, even with the recent decline in equity and bond prices uh, so far this year. Household net worth, according to the Fed's latest financial accounts, data was up $15 trillion or so relative to its pre-pandemic trend. And uh, we think thus far into the second quarter, declines in stock and bonds uh, alongside expected house price gains may have pushed that number down by around $3 trillion. Uh, but nevertheless, household balance sheets are still quite uh, robust. And we think that this will support, again, along with excess savings, uh, steady consumption growth uh, in coming quarters, even after having built in a considerable consumption drag following the drop in the stock market thus far into the year. And that's all for me. Thanks for the great conversation. Thank you so much, Peter, for discussing those models. And you can see more of this um, if you take a look at um, our U.S. economics research. Thank you so much to Preetam, Jan, Alex, and Peter for your insights. The era of stability-oriented macro policies, known as the Great Moderation, is over. The pursuit of faster recovery risk, the continuation of stop-go policies beyond what we're currently seeing is likely to endure. So we are in an era of regime change with structural forces, including demographics, climate objectives, deglobalization, all pointing to higher yields over the next five to 10 years. We look forward to continuing the conversation and exploring the investment implications. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Please stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan's research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 15, 2022.